The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report 2009 Video Archive. Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 15th day of October, 2011. I'd like to welcome everyone back to the Corbett Report podcast and invite all of you, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos that I've created and conducted over the past four and a half years, and links to other alternative, independent, commercial-free media websites like TragedyAndHope.com. Let me start today by taking a moment to thank all of those listeners who heeded my call from last week to get in contact with Fairwinds.com to request Arnie Gunderson to appear on the program. And once again, you guys came through in spades. And within, really, within hours of me putting that podcast out, I had an email in my inbox saying that they were ready, willing, and able to come on. So we have talked and arranged an an interview for this coming week. So once again, thank you you to all of you for doing that. And really, um, it's your own reward because because you will get to hear the fruits of that uh, in the coming week. So, so once again, thank you to all of those people who have taken their time to, uh, to support me in that manner. And also, of course, I would like to also thank all of those people who took the time, effort, energy, and money to support me financially this week, either by signing up for a 100 Japanese yen per month subscription to donate to the Corbett Report, or to those people who have purchased a copy of the 2009 Video Archive DVD. And again, without your support, None of this would really be possible. And finally this week, I'd like to announce something else that's quite uh, quite exciting, really. Um, I have, through the Tragedy and Hope online community, been a- in touch with someone who is able to do uh, transcriptions of episodes of this podcast. And we have already have the first transcription posted. It's a transcription of what I recommended back in episode 200 as one of the most important episodes of this podcast, episode 45, P-Tech and the 9-11 Software. So right now in the articles section of CorbettReport.com, you can click on that tab and you'll be able to find the transcription of the entire episode, um, including all of the, the clips and, and everything. So that's absolutely wonderful. So my uh, my big thanks to, to Deborah for doing that for us and um, and that opens up the possibility of getting transcriptions of other episodes in the future so I'd like to leave it to you I, I of course have my own ideas about what's important to transcribe but if there's anything that you particularly feel would be important to have transcribed please let me know and I will uh, attempt to take your feedback and m- take the most popular choice and perhaps commission that for the future so once again thank you to Deborah for doing that and thank you to all of you for all of your support But as always, we have a ton of information to get through in today's episode, so let's get straight into it. Welcome, my friends, to episode 204 of the Corbett Report podcast, A Brief History of CIA Drug Running. Now, in some ways, this podcast episode has taken me by surprise as much as it has taken you by surprise, because I certainly wasn't planning on doing another podcast on this topic. As long-term listeners will no doubt be aware, we covered this topic back in episode 19 of the podcast, The CIA Ships in the Drugs. And of course, CIA drug running was very much the heart and soul of the story in episode 117 of the podcast, Requiem for the Suicided Gary Webb. 
And we have covered it from time to time in other aspects of the work done here on CorbettReport.com. So it seems like something that uh, would not need to be gone over again. And yet, well, that was perhaps a mistaken assumption. And one that I came to the realization of after having worked on this week's eye-opener report for BoilingFrogsPost.com. And this week, as you may have noticed, if you've watched the episode, which has now been posted to BoilingFrogsPost.com, is a, is a pretty mammoth 20-minute mini-documentary on the subject of CIA drug running. And really, even though it's 20 minutes and, and quite uh, gargantuan uh, for a video report, it's still really only, of course, briefly scratches the surface of the topic. And in researching that report, I began to realize again just how fruitful a uh, avenue of research this, this topic really is and just how much more there remains to be said on the topic. So in in that spirit, I wanted to bring to you some of the research that I came across in the, in the production of that video. And let me first of all once, uh, wholeheartedly recommend that you go and watch that video in its entirety on BoilingFrogsPost.com because I think it is uh, a particularly important topic and still one of great relevance today. And we will getting, be getting into how it is relevant today later on in this podcast episode. But for right now, I guess it would be best to step back and take a broader look at the history of this subject which I do at the beginning of that Boiling Frogs Post eye-opener report by noting that empires rise and fall largely on the back of their control of the international drug trade and that this has been a truism throughout not just decades or centuries, but millennia as the opium trade goes back literally thousands upon thousands of years and really, when you start to look at the big scope of history, has been one of the driving forces in international trade and international relations for just about as long as humans have been organized into civilizations. Now, I won't pretend to go into great depth and detail about the the wide scope of that history, although I think it is fascinating and certainly worthy of your attention and time and your research, but for now, I'm going to be sticking, of course, to the uh, topic of the CIA, so I'm going to be looking quite closely at the, the Anglo-American hierarchy and uh, the, uh, the Anglo-American establishment, which has nested itself in Yale and Skull and Bones and other such uh, corners of the of the new world, so to speak. So, in that spirit, we'll be skipping over vast swaths of history. And again, I would suggest that you look into the history of the opium trade, and especially in the British East India Company and how the British um, monopolized Indian uh, opium production and then used basically opium as a weapon against the uh, the Chinese. And when the Chinese tried to outlaw it, they went in with their, their guns and basically uh, forced the Chinese to take the opium. Um, just an incredible history and, and really goes and shows a lot of the, the power dynamics that have held sway throughout the centuries. And perhaps that uh, that topic deserves its own podcast episode, and perhaps we will cover that in greater detail later on. But I'd like to pick up this story from, well, I guess from the tail end of that story of the British East India Company and the, the Chinese Opium Wars, because it was during that period of time that, well, of all things, Skull and Bones, or at least this, the founding members of Skull and Bones, the that family, uh, was the key American trading house involved in the opium trade. And to pick up on some of this history, we're going to start by listening to, I think, a very fascinating conversation with Chris Milligan of Trine Day Publishing. And I'm sure many of my listeners will be familiar with Trine Day and their, their publishing of seminal works uh, of quote-unquote conspiracy literature, including the works of uh, Daniel Estulin on Bilderberg and 
and uh, many other really interesting books besides. But uh, but before we get into that conversation specifically, perhaps you're wondering who Chris Milligan is. So to set the stage for this episode, let's start by listening to well, Chris Milligan, probably in one of his most famous moments, on Fox News several years ago, talking about his book, Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, and almost just about beginning to actually start to insert some real information of genuine importance on Fox News before they inevitably cut him off. I guess the question is to those of us on the outside, what do they do? Do they get together and have dinner together? Or what is the point of this club? Well, some say the point of the club is bonding. Uh, I, I look at it through the, the eyes of a social historian. And when you look at the grouping of people and the jobs that they have, you find a very uh, large amount of the membership has been involved in intelligence. And then one of the most disturbing things is that the family groups have been involved in uh, drug running since the early 1800s. Drug running? And it seemed... Yes, yes. The, the founder of Skull and Bones was uh, William Huntington Russell, and his family business was a Russell and Company, which was the uh, America's largest opium smuggler, the third largest in the world. Wow. Chris Milligan, unfortunately, we are out of time. We're going to have to leave it at that fascinating subject, the author of a book on uh, Skull and Bones. Thank you so much. Hmm. Well, I think the only surprising thing about that clip is that they allowed Chris Milligan to broach the topic of Skull and Bones in a serious manner at all, let alone to almost actually get some real truth out there live on the airwaves, although they were able to cut him off just in time. And again, no surprise in that fact. So in order to obviously start expanding our knowledge of the subject, we have to turn away from the corporate-owned airwaves, which will not allow you to hear such uh, hard truths, and turn to the alternative media where you can hear such truths. And for that, we're going to turn to, well, Chris Milligan again. Because as I said, uh, he gave a very interesting, very fascinating talk at the 16th High Times Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam. And some of his lecture is available online. And unfortunately, it's only some of it because it's a very, very interesting lecture. And we're going to listen to the clip as it exists on its, in its entirety on YouTube. And uh, let's take a listen to that as Chris Milligan expands on what Fox News doesn't want you to hear about, the real origins of skull and bones in the opium trade. One thing I'm going to be talking about is uh, secret societies and uh, drug trafficking networks. And, well, the, the Order of Skull and Bones is a, is a secret society uh, that is uh, based at Yale University, been around uh, officially as the Order of Skull and Bones since uh, 1832. This is the clipper ship. And the, the China, China trade is a um, polite way of saying the opium business. And the opium business became the largest business in the world in the 1830s. And a lot of it is because of the clipper ship. The, uh, the Americans first started uh, smuggling opium uh, from Turkey uh, in the late 1700s. And it was mostly uh, the Boston uh, concern, uh, mostly people that were related to the, the Cabots, uh, the Perkins family. And um, then um, there got to be a lot of opium being smuggled out of India by the British East India Company. And some of the English people didn't think it was proper for the British East India Company, which had the king the, as, or the queen as part of its partners, to be 
involved in smuggling opium into China where the Chinese didn't want it. So the British East India Company said, okay, well, I'll tell you what, we'll just grow the heck out of in India, but we won't send it in our ships anymore. So you had a couple of private concerns that developed. One, Jardine Matheson out of Scotland was the largest. Dent out of uh, England was the second largest. And uh, the Perkins concern and the Russell concern out of the uh, United States were the third largest, and they combined in the late 1830s. And the thing is, is that, like I say, the, the core group at Skull and Bones, they're all related to the Cabot families. Well, some of the best information about opium smuggling in the 18th century is in books about Cabot genealogy. With the, with the clipper ship, they were able to go to, once they got involved in the trade between uh, India and uh, Canton, they were able to take the clipper ship and make the trip there three times a year. And before that, it would sometime take them up to two years just to get from Canton to India and back. And now these ships could go there three times a year. So you can imagine, I mean, uh, the amount of opium going in uh, doubled ten, uh, ten times in, in just a, a few years. And actually, they got so much of it, and opium got to be such a big thing that it, they got like a stock market on it and speculators, and they drove the price up and down and all this type of stuff. And they caused the uh, financial crisis of 1837. And... It was kind of ironic that some of the members of these families, they lost all their money in the financial panic of 1837. They had to go back and make another fortune uh, in the opium fortune because these guys, I mean, were making big, big bucks. And, you know, and, I, and I'm not saying that, you know, opium and, is, is a bad thing, you know, but it, it, it does tend to put people in a, in a, in a space. Well, now, these guys here, uh, William Huntington Russell and Alonzo Taft, those are the two founders of the Order of Skull and Bones. And uh, they're also important as far as uh, the history of uh, drugs in the world. Uh, William Huntington Russell, his uh, cousin down there, uh, Samuel Russell, um, he was uh, the founder of Russell Company, which was the third largest uh, opium smuggler uh, in, in, the, in the world. And... What they did with the uh, money that they made in the opium, they brought it back here and uh, set up the railroads and uh, took a lot of land. It's, it's no uh, mistake that uh, Mr. Weyerhaeuser was also a member who got most of those lands, was a member of the Order of Skull and Bones. Uh, the other gentleman over there, uh, Alfonso Taft, was uh, the other um, uh, co-founder in 1832. Uh, he was, uh, later on, was um, oh, Attorney General, uh, Secretary of War, uh, Minister to Austria, Habsburg, uh, Minister to uh, Russia. Uh, his son down there, uh, William Howard Taft, was the only person to be uh, uh, Supreme Court Justice and also to be um, President of the United States. And he was also uh, heavily involved in getting the United States um, he helped set up the Hague and the Shanghai uh, Convention that helped make uh, three plants uh, illegal around the world that gave them a prohibition. Now, here's, here's Robert Bennett Forbes. He was one of uh, the partners uh, in uh, Russell and Company. Forbes, as in John Forbes Carey, who's also a member of Skull and Bones, who's a quote-unquote Democrat running for uh, president. Um, John Forbes... Um, lived in Milton, Massachusetts, uh, uh, just down the street from where uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush uh, was born. 
And um, Robert Bennett Forbes was one of the persons that would say that he didn't uh, smuggle opium. And, and uh, one thing that he did was he had a ship, and the ship was named the Linton. And you see, you know, when you're, when you're um, selling something that's illegal, you have to come up with ways to do it, you know. And, and what these guys did was you couldn't take your ship into Canton loaded with opium. That was a no-no. What you did was there was this island called Linton that was outside of the port, and, and they had ships. They, they, they were a new ship. They called them store ships, and Robert Bennett Ford had one, and he even named it the Linton. And it sat out there for like two years, and the ships would come up, and they would offload the opium there, and then they would go on into Canton, and they would sell their chits, their piece of paper to the people, and then they would go down there and pick up their opium. The Chinese didn't like this, you know. I mean, they didn't really think that they needed much, uh, much from us. And uh, after the Americans, uh, the Americans first, we were able to sell them some of the ginseng uh, that we collected and whatnot, but uh, they didn't really want the pottery that we made. They had China, you know, and uh, they had all the cloth and all the stuff that they needed. And, and we were able to, you know, uh, kill off most, most of the seals in the Northwest and uh, take them over to them, and then we cut down most of the sandalwood in Hawaii and places like that. But after a while, we didn't really have anything, so they had to uh, um, come up with something to uh, get the items there. And then also, it was part of a, um, a political scheme in that the Dutch had found out early on in their um, uh, plantations in, in Indonesia that they couldn't control the local population unless there was opium. And it was part of a political concern in trying to uh, uh, break down uh, the area. So we had the Opium Wars. And we had the Opium Wars 1 and 2. And uh, we won both of them. And after uh, the first one, uh, we got to go to Shanghai and, and open up the ports of Shanghai. So we had these motherships going up and down and... and uh, um, Skull and Bone, well, the, the families of Skull and Bones and Russell and Company, they owned 80% um, of the railroad traffic and all the shipping. They had, they had, a, they had a lock on it. They had 80% of it. These are their offices in Shanghai. Well, after the Second Opium War, opium was made legal. And guess what? They had to start selling off all their shipping and their railroad things because, gee whiz, they stopped making their money. Well, what happened? The main blew up. Well, yeah, they got us into war, you know. I mean, there was a lot of things that Skull and Bones did in, in between, a lot of shenanigans. They were working us up to 1913, get us into the Federal Reserve, take our money away from us, you know. I mean, Thomas Jefferson said, if you ever let a private bank uh, make your money, you're going to wake, your children are going to wake up, be wage slaves. Well, it's time to wake up. Uh, you know, they, they got the American people all in a tither about, the Cubans. They said that the uh, Spanish are just treating them dirty. They're making concentration camps and all kinds of things like that. And we got to go to war. We got to go to war. Well, we still wouldn't go to war, and they were getting a lot of flap doodle going and getting everything going. So finally, they, you know, the main blew up. We had we had a something happen, you know, and 
they said the Spanish did it and all this type of stuff and fed us all kind of literature, you know. I mean, there's a Spaniard out to kill us all and whatnot, and they, they did it. And I mean, sound, look familiar, you know, we've seen any, anything happening like this going on, you know. And so, like I say, we declared war on Spain, and they got the people all thinking that we were going to go to Cuba. Well, we didn't go to Cuba. We went to the Philippines. Well, why did we go to the Philippines? You know, they, oh, we don't go there. The, the Dutch are going to take it, or the Germans are going to take it, or something, and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, well, actually, you see, the, these families, the opium families have been using Manila as a, as a backup uh, office uh, for, for years and years. And we fought a war there. I mean, when Dewey came and, and uh, uh, met the Philippines at the beach, they'd been fighting a war against the Spaniards for quite a while, and they'd pretty much uh, beaten them. And uh, the Filipino says, boy, we really kicked those Spanish butts, Mr. Dewey. And Mr. Dewey said, well, my little brown brother, we need to take care of you. So, and then if you follow the career of Mr. Taft, like I say, one of the things that he did was he got us involved in the Hague and the Shanghai Convention. And then it's very interesting, if you look at the Order of Skull and Bones, you can find through Reverend... Uh, there's a bunch of Phelps and Stokes and Ansons. I don't know if it's Anson, Phelps, Stokes, or Stokes, Phelps, Anson, but uh, they were involved in the other side of creating the, the clamor about opium being bad. And that is exactly where the clip ends, so that's rather unfortunate because it's just really getting interesting. But I certainly hope that people took some notes of that very, very detailed, very interesting talk and some of the names and connections that came up there because I think there's a just a plethora of information and history, real history in there. Uh, the type of history they certainly don't teach you at school, but the uh, type of history that if they did, perhaps more people would actually pay attention. Um, but uh, uh, let's just pick up on one of those threads. Um, there are so many to pick up from there, but let's let's just pick up on that last part that he was mentioning about the, the Shanghai and the Hague uh, conferences, the conventions about uh, opium uh, control. Well, that's that's extremely interesting. So let's, let's find out a little bit more about that. And there's an article from findarticles.com called The Beginnings of International Drug Control. Quote, International cooperation in drug control began in 1909 when the International Opium Commission met in Shanghai, China. Convened by the United States and attended by 13 world powers, the Shanghai Conference led to the signing in 1912 of the first international convention to attempt the control of a narcotic. At the time, the opium trade was coming under increasing criticism, partly due to growing addiction problems in the Far East and in the colonial powers, but also due to changing diplomatic and political allegiances within the broader context of international relations. As a direct consequence of the Shanghai Conference, the Hague Opium Convention was signed in 1912. The parties to the convention agreed to limit the manufacture, trade, and use of these products to medic medical use, cooperate in order to restrict use and to enforce restriction efficiently, close opium dens, penalize possession, and prohibit selling to unauthorized persons." End quote. Very interesting. So, as Chris Milligan pointed out, Skull and Bones had its hand in the formation of that convention. Now, why would the opium traders want to illegalize and, and enshrine for in an international relations the idea that opium should be eradicated or made uh, something of ill repute? 
oh, wait, that's because they make more money when they trade it that way. Oh, I see. Once again, talking about the the trick of weaving gold out of straw that we talked about in a previous episode of this podcast. Well, if you can make something illegal and difficult to get, then automatically it increases the price. And if you're in control of the supply, well, guess what? You've just made yourself oodles and oodles and oodles of money. And as we heard in that clip, Chris Milligan gives some of the indications of the ways that that money was poured into various uh, business ventures by the Bonesmen uh, that were eventually parlayed and used to buy off the the Congress and and get their reach and and impact even further. So really, it's uh, it's a terrible circular system of uh, power feeding on itself and becoming even more powerful. And unfortunately, the system that we have today with, of course, the famous, infamous 2004 election of Bonesman versus Bonesman being the, the inevitable result of such a system. And it's an extremely interesting history, but why are we talking about Skull and Bones in an episode that's supposedly devoted to the CIA? Well, hopefully I don't have to make this clear to anyone in the audience, but just in case we do, well, let's listen to this. In a place where tomorrow's leaders are groomed. Where did Mr. McNamara learn to row? In local sewers, I imagine. He's a townie. He won us the Ivy League championship three years in a row. That's all I know. In an organization. Are you ready to be reborn? Where success is assured. Our membership has its pleasures, its hardships, and sometimes its pain. We live by the rules. We die by the rules. Gentlemen, welcome home. Luke McNamara is about to get an opportunity. A skull of any He's only dreamed of. Yeah. Senator, it's a pleasure to meet you. What do you think of all this? To be honest, it's all a little bit overwhelming. But if a secret society can give you everything you desire... This is your pre-acceptance to the law school of your choice. That's got to be a mistake. You are a skull. Imagine what they can take away. None of us are safe. What are you going to do? We live by the rules, we die by the rules. I want to know the truth about what happened that night. The surveillance cameras. So there's got to be tape. Can you get any closer on this? Closer. I know what you did. It's time we remove Mr. McNamara. He's no longer loyal. This February... If you keep digging, you're going to dig your own grave. Only an elite few ever get in. I have evidence. They raised the tape. Who? The skull. They control everything. No one has ever gotten out. They're dead. If it's secret and elite, it can't be good. Would you like your life back, Luke? Ah, Hollywood. Yes, well, for those of you in the audience who might not have gotten the reference, and for those of you who didn't, my hat's off to you, but that was a trailer for the 2000 Hollywood flick The Skulls, based, of course, on Skull and Bones. And I myself haven't subjected myself to that uh, that particular Hollywood movie because I have better things to do with my time than subject myself to a Hollywood movie if it can be avoided, unless it's a really good one. But, uh, but yes, the, uh, from what I've heard, they actually do go into some degree of detail about the fact that the CIA is really an offshoot of Skull and Bones, which is the real and true history when you start to look in the intelligence agency and how it was uh, really founded out of this uh, secret society. And uh, so many of the key figures in CIA history have been Bonesmen, including, of course, director of Central Intelligence himself, George Poppy Bush. Poppy, you get it? 
poppy. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, uh, nice little jokes like that abound all over the place and they're right in your face, but the profane are not expected to actually understand what is being said. And unfortunately, most of the time, the profane, meaning you and I and everyone who is not a member of these elite clubs, generally don't get it because, again, we are being deprived of the information which has been occulted from us, hidden under our noses about who these people are, what their family connections are, how they made their fortunes, and what they're really up to these days. So from that, let's transition into the historical aspect of today's episode, looking at the Skull and Bones origins of the CIA and the opium origins of Skull and Bones, into how the CIA has really just served to function as the stormtroopers, uh, if, if such a term can be for the Anglo-American imperial order such as it exists in the late 20th and early 21st century in much the same way that the British East India Company was just an arm of control of the British uh, Anglo-American aristocracy back in its day and age. And I think to make that explicit, we'll have to take a look at some of the specific instances of CIA complicity in international drug trafficking. Now, as I say, we've taken a look at some of that history before in this podcast, including, of course, episode 19 and uh, episode 117, talking specifically about, mostly about the uh, CIA Contra drug running and uh, the MENA Arkansas connection with uh, Bill Clinton as governor and all of that very, very fascinating history, which I do suggest that people look into. So today, let's let's take a look at some of the other aspects of CIA drug running history, because trust me, there is there is a lot more out there. And uh, let's start by taking a look at, for example, CIA operations in Burma in the late 1940s. Now, when it comes to the idea of C-47s dropping parachute bales onto targets in Burma back in the 1940s, this is what the establishment wants you to think about. The problem of supply to isolated Burmese jungle outposts is neatly solved by planes of the carrier command. A tricky and hazardous operation. The chutes must be dropped from low altitudes to avoid being lost in the thick jungle. These men have become almost as expert as bombers in hitting the small clearings. There's a real shot right on the button as these Air Force pictures show. This is real manna from heaven. That, as I say, is what the U.S. official establishment would like you to think about when you think of C-47s dropping things on Burma. But what they don't want you to think about is contained in the one of the seminal works on the subject of uh, CIA complicity in heroin trafficking and drug trafficking in general. The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, which was published in 1972 by Alfred W. McCoy, who was, ironically enough, uh, attempting to get a PhD in Southeast Asian history from Yale University, aka the home of Skull and Bones, of all places, at the time of the publication of this book. And as I say, it is one of the seminal works on the subject of American intelligence involvement in opium smuggling and drug running in general. So I would highly recommend the book. And let's just quote a little bit from the section on the KMT in Burma. So what is the KMT? Well, reading from that section of the politics of heroin in Southeast Asia, quote, the precipitous collapse of the nationalist Chinese Kuomintang, or KMT, government in 1949, convinced the Truman administration that it had to stem the southward flow of communism into Southeast Asia. In 1950, the Defense Department extended military aid to the French in Indochina. In that same year, the CIA began regrouping those remnants of the defeated Kuomintang army in the Burmese Shan states for a projected invasion of southern China. 
Although the KMT army was to fail in its military operations, it succeeded in monopolizing and expanding the Shan state's opium trade. The KMT shipped bountiful harvests to northern Thailand, where they were sold to General Fao Sriyananda of the Thai police, a CIA client. The CIA had promoted the Fao-KMT partnership in order to provide a secure rear area for the KMT, but this alliance soon became a critical factor in the growth of Southeast Asia's narcotics traffic. With CIA support, the KMT remained in Burma until 1961, when a Burmese army offensive drove them into Laos and Thailand. By this time, however, the Kuomintang had already used their control over the tribal populations to expand Shan state opium production by almost 1,000% from less than 40 tons after World War II to an estimated 300 to 400 tons by 1962. From bases in northern Thailand, the KMT have continued to send huge mule caravans into the Shan states to bring out the opium harvest. Today, over 20 years after the CIA first began supporting KMT troops in the Golden Triangle region, these KMT caravans control almost a third of the world's total illicit opium supply and have a growing share of Southeast Asia's thriving heroin business. End quote. Now keep in mind that that was written in 1972, back when the Golden Triangle was the principal source of heroin in the world. And as, uh, as Alfred McCoy makes clear in that work, it was very much with the full complicity and support of the CIA that that was made possible. So there is a direct correlation between CIA involvement in the region and the fact that it grew to be the world's number one opium supplier. And we will see that relation continue as the CIA disengages from the Golden Triangle and engages in the Golden Crescent, another area of the world, but more on that later. For the moment, let's stick to the Golden Triangle and the formation of it here with the KMT in Burma. And getting back to the subject of the C-47s and the subject of CIA complicity in all of this drug trafficking, I'll read from a little later on in that same chapter of uh, Alfred McCoy's work. Quote, Almost all the KMT opium was sent south to Thailand, either by mule train or aircraft. Soon after their arrival in Burma, the KMT formed a mountain transport unit, recruiting local mule drivers and their animals. Since most of their munitions and supplies were hauled overland from Thailand, the KMT mule caravans found it convenient to haul opium on the outgoing trip from Mong Zat and soon developed a regular caravan trade with Thailand. Burmese military sources claim that much of the KMT opium was flown from Mongzat in unmarked C-47s flying to Thailand and Taiwan. End quote. Again, CIA fingerprints all over the Burmese operations and, of course, full CIA complicity and support in the arming and funding and training and regrouping and equipping of the KMT and, of course, the KMT funding themselves through their opium trading. So we begin to get a taste of how the CIA operates, and unfortunately, really what happened there with Burma is something that was to repeat itself over and over and over and over and over and over again throughout the decades, until one almost gets the sense that this is part of the standard operating procedure of the Central Intelligence Agency. Because sadly enough, as in Burma, so in Laos. I was a freelance journalist and I went to Laos to do this story on the source of the heroin and opium that was flooding into South Vietnam. And I was interviewing opium farmers. How much did you produce last year? What did you do with it? And the answers were always the same. We got about five, maybe ten kilos. At the end of harvest, we went down to that landing pad. Uh, an American helicopter came in 
paid us cash for the opium, loaded the opium on the helicopter and flew away. I mean, the trail of drugs follows the trail of clandestine operations. And there's a very good reason for that. Um, if you're carrying out clandestine operations, you need black money. And you need cooperation from criminals. All right. When you to put together black money, untraceable money, and criminals, what does it add up to? Eh, traffic. You asked me a question about my sources earlier. I, I thought that people might challenge me. How do you know all this? You know, this is all secondhand. And I said, i got to go talk to General Owen. He is, after all, the commander-in-chief of an army that's fighting alongside the United States during the Vietnam War. This is potentially a very serious allegation if it's slanderous, okay? Uh, how does one prepare for such an interview? I don't know. I just stuck up my hand, got in the first taxi that stopped, and said, take me to General Owen's house. General, I'm from Harper's Magazine, and uh, I'm a reporter, and I'm doing profiles of freedom fighters here in Asia. I mean, I was profiling freedom fighters, but they were fighting for freedom in a way that most people weren't aware. They were using drugs and opium to help fight freedom. And we got to the end, I said, General, it's all very interesting. And I would, and here I was winging it. I said, look, I would be dishonest. I would, I, I, if I didn't, and I don't mean to upset you, if I didn't tell you, I heard that back in the early and mid-1960s, when you were running the opium trade, uh, that, uh, that you stole money. And he said, bastard Pumi is gossiping against me again. I'm sick of these allegations, sick of them, sick of them. And suddenly that, that elephantine man leapt out of his chair and he came down with this ledger, which on the front of it said, control to opium allows, okay? Here, here's uh, opium, I purchased it here, and you see, I'm exporting it. I'm getting a sale here in Saigon. And here's the amount of the sale. And here's the deposit in the account. And here's the distribution of the funds. And he said, look, here's another transaction. All the transaction he was showing to me was after the date at which Laos had agreed to abolish opium. All these transactions were illegal. This was traffic. So I went around to the U.S. Embassy. I have a source, and I'm concerned about the veracity of my source, um, who alleges that in the early 1960s, that General Owen Radicombe, Commander-in-Chief of the Royal Ocean Army, our ally, was heavily involved, in fact, was in control of the opium traffic here in Laos. And the guy said, sure, come back tomorrow. He came back and said, look, I don't know who your source is, but that's utterly unreliable information. General Owen is not now, nor has he ever been involved in the drug traffic. And sadly enough, if you guessed as in Laos, so in Afghanistan, you're exactly right. Well, obviously, um, uh, opium does not ref just uh, process itself into heroin. That's, that in, in itself is a, is a process that requires certain chemicals and certain uh, agents. Uh, I mean, how, how is that being done, and, and uh, who are the main groups behind that? I can't name groups, but I, 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 I've thought a lot about this, and I, what I'm saying now is a bit speculative, but, but I, I think it holds up. This all began, the, the, the first processing was done by Europeans, and according to the French, Americans who started coming to Afghanistan in the 1970s. Now, if we think about what was happening in the 1970s, America was pulling out of Indochina. Up until then, 
uh, Burma, Laos, Northern Thailand, the so-called uh, Golden Triangle, it had totally dominated the global production of opium. But as the Americans pulled out, the political system that protected the traffickers and so on was beginning to collapse. And it's quite striking that as the Americans pulled out of Vietnam, opium production in the triangle went down, and at the same time, simultaneously, opium production in the Golden Crescent, between the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan, began to increase. And the same pattern, again, repeated in the 90s. You still had a certain amount of opium production in the 1990s in uh, in uh, the Golden Triangle, but there was a very energetic UN-backed program to do crop substitution, and to terminate, to eliminate opium production in the Triangle. You cannot say it's been eliminated, but in the 90s it did go down. And the interesting thing is, and here the statistics are, are really remarkable, as it went down in the triangle, it increased in the uh, Golden Crescent, so that the total production between the two areas was roughly the same. Why do I stress that? Because it seems to me that the real impetus for all of this is not coming locally from indigenous elements in either one place or the other, but it is coming from a global drug trade that is probably Western-based and was certainly clearly, with the I write about this in American War Machine, with the advantage of historical retrospection, we see how important the CIA was for the building up of, because it was an enormous increase initially right after the war of drug production in the Golden Triangle. The CIA is probably the primary reason why you saw such dramatic increase in production. And so we have to ask ourselves, why are we now looking at the Golden uh, Crescent, where, again, drug production increased at the same time that CIA involvement increased. They always say it was indirect through ISI, but uh, it was still, I mean, America put billions of dollars into Afghanistan in the 1980s, and it went. The two two groups, Abu Sayyaf and Hekmatyar's group, Hezbi Islami, which were, uh, because they were not very popular in Afghanistan, they compensated for that by using the drug trade to build up their power. So uh, we have to, if we really are saying, what are we going to do about drugs in Afghanistan, we have to look at these external forces. We, we have to look at Washington, I'm afraid, and do something there. Legalize drugs, certainly legalize marijuana as a first step, and... Uh, you will the solutions to this drug crisis will come on the demand side because uh, you can you can take the the profits out of the drug uh, trade by by legalizing it. But of course, uh, the people who have a vested interest in keeping those profits would uh, be obviously against the legalization. So, what does that mean, given the fact that legalization is is pretty much untenable or unspeakable in Washington? Well, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm just saying that we have a problem, by the way, which is, you know, not going to go away. 
No one should think that if America just pulls out of Afghanistan that uh, drugs will cease there because now it is uh, more, I mean, you had a relatively prosperous Thailand that was beginning to uh, develop a real uh, mixed economy to uh, replace the drug economy. Nothing like that's happening in Afghanistan. Uh, there will be some export of raw materials and things, possibly a pipeline or two, but uh, it's, it, it's a very real problem and there won't be any solutions until we see what the problem is, what are the major forces driving the problem, and that's why I think it's it's good to point things out, even though you're absolutely right. There is no chance today that Washington would legalize drugs. Banks are, you know, illegal drug money laundering has uh, affected virtually all the major banks in, uh, in America. The one bank, it's gone now, Wachovia Bank, admitted to... Uh, processing over a hundred million, but it, the real figure was probably much higher than that. But it's it's wrong to single out the Wachovia Bank because the, the, the real profits, another factor which is not mentioned enough is that probably 80% of the profits in the drug trade are not made in the country of origin, they're made in the countries of consumption. The They estimate that the drug uh, the, the 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 dollar amount of drugs leaving Afghanistan is four billion, but the total drug. Uh, sorry, I'm just talking about opium heroin here. Opiate, the total opiate uh, market, which is ninety three percent of it coming from Afghanistan, the total market is something like at least sixty sixty five billion. So you can see that the four billion that Afghanistan makes out of this is small potatoes compared to the money that's made in the countries of consumption. And that money is banked in Western banks. And we had uh, Mr. Da Costa, the head of the UN Drug Office, who said that uh, he knew of banks that only survived the crisis in 2008 because of the, uh, of the drug money that flowed into them. And there was a congressional report that said, uh, that now, I, this is, I'm now talking about total illegal uh, funds, not just opium uh, money, but that uh, illegal uh, money accounted for $500 billion to a trillion dollars of banking business a year in the United States. So we're talking about big business here and some people like James Petras have said we should call the American economy a narco economy, not for what we grow in the country, but for what we bank in the country. And the financial interests are the most powerful interests in America today. So it's no surprise that there are very few friends for the idea of a rational drug policy in Congress. And tragically, the same story goes on and on and on in country after country all around the globe, sometimes even in some surprising places. And for that, let's take a little bit of an excerpt from an article called The CIA and Drugs Just Say Why Not by William Bloom, published on thirdworldtraveler.com. 
And it notes a number of these examples and many others in which CIA drug running and CIA complicity in drug running has been exposed, including, surprisingly enough, Australia, 1973 to 1980, quote, the Nugan Hand Bank of Sydney was a CIA bank in all but name. Among its officers were a network of U.S. generals, admirals, and CIA men, including former CIA director William Colby, who was also one of its lawyers. With branches in Saudi Arabia, Europe, Southeast Asia, South America, and the U.S., Nugan Handbank financed drug trafficking, money laundering, and international arms dealings. In 1980, amidst several mysterious deaths, the bank collapsed, $50 million in debt. End quote. And of course, there's Panama and Costa Rica and many, many, many other places and countries besides. But of course, that brings us to the question of the present. Is the CIA still up to its old tricks? Well, unfortunately, the answer is, of course, a resounding yes. And for more on that, let's listen to a few minutes of that eye-opener report in which I talk about the Mexican angle. Despite the numerous documented and fully admitted examples of CIA involvement in drug dealing in the past, the idea that the agency is still tied in with international drug traffickers is largely dismissed as the stuff of conspiracy theory. Over the last several years, however, some sensational but underreported stories of plane crashes in Mexico have served to focus attention once again on the issue of agency complicity in drug dealing. In 2004, a Beach 200 was apprehended in Nicaragua with 1,100 kilos of cocaine. It was bearing a false tail number for a CIA aircraft owned by a CIA shell company. In 2006, a DC-9 was seized on a jungle airstrip in the Yucatan carrying 5.5 tons of cocaine packed into 126 identical black suitcases. The plane's owner was linked to a company called Skyway Communications, whose CEO, James Kent, had previously held contract positions supporting intelligence projects for the DoD. In 2007, a Grumman Gulfstream 2 jet crashed in Mexico, carrying 3.3 tons of Colombian cocaine linked to the Mexican Sinaloa drug cartel. Later, it was revealed that the plane had previously been used by the CIA to carry out rendition flights to Guantanamo Bay. In 2008, a Cessna 402C aircraft was seized in Colombia with 850 kilos of cocaine bound for the United States. The plane's purchase history links it to a company that one ex-CIA asset has fingered as being involved in U.S. government operations. Now, the issue of intelligence agency drug dealing has once again raised its head in spectacular fashion in a rather unlikely place. A Chicago federal courtroom. The case revolves around the prosecution of an accused Mexican drug trafficker, Jesus Vicente Zambada Niebla. Zambada Niebla is part of the famed Sinaloa drug cartel, an organization that has risen in Calderon's Mexico to become one of the most powerful international drug trafficking cartels in the region, if not on the globe. His case revolves around Fast and Furious, an offshoot of the ATF's Project Gunrunner, which was ostensibly set up to stop the flow of illegal weapons into Mexico, but has in fact allowed over 2,000 guns to be smuggled under the ATF's nose into the hands of Mexican drug gangs. Zambada Niebla is in court on charges of serving as the logistical coordinator for the Sinaloa cartel, helping to import tons of cocaine into the U.S. by land, rail, and air. The only problem is that Zambada Niebla is now claiming to be an asset of the U.S. government. In response to this claim, U.S. government prosecutors are attempting to invoke the Classified Information Procedures Act to keep classified material related to national security out of public court proceedings. 
according to a former federal agent contacted for comment on the case by Bill Conroy of Narco News. The invocation of SEPA means that CIA involvement in the case is a very reasonable conclusion, and there is hot stuff to hide. Earlier this week, I had the chance to talk to Bill Conroy about the case and about the possible relationship between the CIA and the Mexican drug cartels. And all of a sudden, this, this, this top guy with the Sinaloa cartel is picked up in Mexico City after he claims he's picked up right after meeting with DE agents in a, a hotel in Mexico City. And the government agrees he did meet with DE agents. Their stories kind of diverge from there. Uh, Sambada claims that he had been cooperating with the U.S. government for years, going back to, I think, 2004. And through an intermediary, another Sinaloa cartel uh, leadership figure, uh, a lawyer for them, um, whose job it was to basically get these guys out of jail and do deals for them, um, who is a cooperating source or an informant for the U.S. government. The U.S. government admits that, and he's been so for about 10 years. Um, but they claim that there was no offer of any deals to any of these people. They were just helping this particular lawyer, and he was just helping the government out, you know, with the hope that, you know, they would leave him alone because he had been indicted in California, but, he, you know, he was in Mexico and they claimed they, they, they couldn't get him. Well, we know that isn't true because they've, they've extradited all these people up here. So whatever the case, they had a deep mole informant inside the Sinaloa cartel that the U.S. government admits, and Zabata said he was on that bandwagon, as was all the leadership of the Sinaloa cartel, that in fact they were all cooperating with the U.S. government in exchange for a quid pro quo which says, leave us alone, tip us off if the Mexican government is on to us so we can hide, um, you know, essentially don't prosecute us for our crimes. That's what they claim. Um, the government, the U.S. government now in Chicago, the federal prosecutor handling it, um, you know, says, well, that's not true at all. We never promised any blanket immunity. Um, and, you know, Zimbabwe was never authorized to uh, import, you know, tons of cocaine into the United States and et cetera. Um, and, and that's what's at issue in, in this trial um, as is, is who's telling the truth about this. But what's already been conceded and you know, and we've reported on it is is already you know, you know how do I say this, mind-boggling in the sense that we have the admission from from the U.S. government that they had a, a high-level informant inside the Sinaloa cartel, who by anyone's description on both sides was a confidant of the top guy Chapo Guzman and Ismail has actually met with lawyers for and with these these people has been in meetings with them. Has also been in meetings allegedly with you know uh, with DEA and, and U.S. law enforcement. Um, of course, they don't talk about intelligence agencies in, in these these briefings and these legal pleadings because that's classified. But the point is, law enforcement's admitted at least twenty people. At least twenty people met with Zambada um, by the, in the court pleadings. Um, so you know, okay, we can choose to believe who we want here, but it's pretty clear the U.S. had its had its fingers pretty deep inside the Sinaloa cartel. Why they didn't scoop up Chupo, Chapo Guzman or the leadership or why they didn't take the cartel down, who knows? Well, surprise, surprise, the CIA in bed with the Mexican drug cartels. Who would have thunk it except anyone who's actually been paying attention for the last several decades? And so we've arrived at this spot, pretty much the exact same spot that we've been at since the CIA was first formed in the late 1940s. 
This, of course, raises the inevitable question of what can we do about all of this? If, as Chris Milligan pointed out at the beginning of today's episode, the bonesmen behind the CIA are also simultaneously the bonesmen who are profiting from the opium trade, even as they are prosecuting this phony drug war that they claim to be in the name of eradicating drugs, but which has only served to increase the drug use in America and in many other countries besides, well then, what is the answer to all of this? And it seems quite obvious, if they don't want us to throw them in the briar patch and make their drugs illegal, well then perhaps we should decriminalize the drugs, taking the money out of the drug trade, and thereby taking the money out of the CIA's coffers. This is hardly a radical idea, and it's one that's been proposed many times by many people. But let's end today by listening to a proposal that was made way back in 1988 by then-presidential candidate Ron Paul. I am James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. I don't think there's any doubt about it. I mean, it was uh, even some of it got reported in the Iran-Contra scandals. We did know that there were uh, drugs being drugs involved, and and they were selling uh, drugs back and forth. I think that might be the number one reason uh, for the drug laws. I mean, they use and play on the good people of America to support them. But I think the number one reason is not not to have high prices for some. Uh, two-bit drug dealer as much as to raise the funds necessary to for governments to do illegal things whether it's some terrorist government someplace or whether it's our own CIA to fund programs that they can't get Congress to fund uh, I think it's tragic and uh, the sooner we get rid of the drug laws uh, the sooner this would end